So what happens when you don't like what the Bible says? You rewrite it. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey friends, welcome, welcome to The Line of Fire. This is Michael Brown. As you can see, this is not our normal studio. I'm on the road in California getting ready for a major culture conference this week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I, I kick things off tonight and then do a couple of day sessions. If you're anywhere near Azusa Pacific University in California, by all means, join us. There'll be great speakers each night, great sessions during the day. If you've got a question for me, 866-348-7884, 866-34-TRUTH. Now, I'm going to interact a little bit more with our friends on Facebook today. Uh, normally, as I'm watching our stream, I'm watching the comments on YouTube, and I'm not also watching the Facebook comments, but today I am. So give me some thumbs up, show me some love if you can hear us loud and clear, our team worked hard to get everything set up properly. And here we are, ready to come your way live. 866-348-7884. Now, here's what I'm going to do. If you have a Bible-related question for me today, give me a call. If you can't call, post it on the thread, and I'll see if I can respond to some of them on the air. I won't be responding on Facebook. But give me a call if you can. Uh, do you remember some years back... Rob Bell was all over secular media. Do you know why? Because he wrote a book questioning the existence of hell. If, if you want to become the darling of the liberal media overnight, what you need to do as a Christian leader is say, I question whether there's going to be future punishment or hell. Or around Easter, question whether Jesus really died or rose from the dead. Or around Christmas, say, we don't know if Jesus really existed. Oh, you will become the darling of the liberal media overnight. And Newsweek or Time or New York Times or Washington Post or some other publication will carry your story for sure. Well, uh, over the weekend, as I was traveling to California yesterday on Sunday, I got a bunch of folks tweeting me, emailing me, copying me. Have you seen this article? It was written by Dr. Edan Dershowitz, a young biblical scholar with whom I was not familiar. And he had written an op-ed piece for the New York Times based on an earlier academic article. Now, I've subsequently looked at his academic article, which is over 20 pages long, and it's a serious academic article in a serious academic journal. But his op-ed piece in the New York Times condenses everything. And his basic argument is that the original text of Leviticus so that, that what we have now has been changed and edited over a period of many centuries. Critical scholars would hold to a view like that. That the original text of Leviticus permitted sex between men. Yeah, it permitted sex between men with a couple of exceptions. Like you could have sex with your own father, for example, or with your father's brother, with your uncle. But otherwise, homosexual acts were originally permitted, according to Leviticus, and then centuries later, things were changed. And the prohibition against 
Same-sex intercourse was added in Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. And you say, what does he base that on? Now, I wrote an article in response. Uh, wrote it immediately, read his article, wrote a response immediately. So it's on a bunch of different websites. You can see it on, on our website, AskDrBrown.org. You can see it on Stream.org or wherever you normally read my articles, Charisma News, wherever else they appear. So I have a short and sweet response to his short and sweet op-ed piece. This is not a lengthy academic response to his lengthy academic piece. However, his main arguments are this that in the ancient biblical world, say during the time of Moses, that in the ancient laws, same-sex practice was not prohibited. That it was basically unheard of to prohibit men having sex with men. And, and so the original text of Leviticus 18 had no prohibitions against this, all right? That's where he starts. Then he says, if you look at a couple of the verses, Leviticus 18.7 and Leviticus 18.14, you'll see that it, it doesn't seem to read as naturally in the Hebrew. And when he reconstructs it, he now determines that originally, originally, the text did not have a prohibition against same-sex intercourse, except in a couple of specific instances. Now, here's the first thing I want to point out. This is sheer fabrication. This is sheer, 100% complete fabrication. In other words, there is not a stitch of actual textual evidence. There's not a manuscript that says this. There's not an ancient text that says this. There's not a fragment of a text that says this. It is 100% reconstruction. It is 100% based on his own imaginary reading of the text with literally zero, zero, capital Z-E-R-O, zero textual report. Well, his thing would be, or support, his thing would be, well, I'm doing detective work and I'm recovering things. Let me repeat, there is zero support for this. That's number one. Number two, what we refer to as the Bible is the Bible as we have it, not as someone originally reconstructs it. So this is only of interest, what he's writing is only of interest to someone who doesn't believe the Bible as we have it is God's word. You follow? In other words, if I tell you, well, Jesus didn't originally say that. You say, well, where do I get that from? Well, I, that's my opinion. Well, what's written in the Bible? Yeah, well, that's what's written there, but I don't accept it. Uh, in other words, you have to not accept the text we have as scripture. So this is not of any value to someone who would say, well, I'm a gay conservative Christian. And I believe in the authority of Scripture, but we're just misinterpreting the Bible. This would not be of, of any interest whatsoever to someone like that, because this person is duty-bound to accept Scripture as we have it. That's the only Bible we have, not someone's reconstruction. So that's the second problem. A, a third issue is that there's no evidence whatsoever within the text that Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13, which strictly forbid homosexual practice, that these are later intrusions, that these don't belong, that these somehow don't fit. You can't argue for that either. Look, there, there are things that clearly get squeezed in. You know, you're reading something, it's like, ah, oh, somebody changed something here. Maybe we're, we're doing a broadcast and a part of the audio cut out and something had to be fit back in, and we tried to fit it in, but it's not precise. You can hear it and think, ah, you know, I see what happened. Or someone who's an expert can tell you that picture, there was Photoshop editing. There's no evidence of that kind of editing where these things are clear additions that do not fit. 
Not only so, the whole idea that Leviticus as we have it now, or the so-called holiness code as we have it now, was edited many centuries later and doesn't go back to Moses. Even if I accepted that critical viewpoint, all right, even, even if I accepted that point of view and said that I actually believe that, that there was a long editorial process, which I, which I don't, by the way, but even if I did, the, the holiness code with all the laws about incest and things like that, that would be allegedly, according to these critical scholars, written very late in history. In other words, the whole thing would have come from a later period, in which case there was, ne- there was never a period of time when there was, when there was a, a, a permission for same-sex activity. As for the ancient world, the world of Egypt, the world of Babylon and Assyria, the, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, did they have strong prohibitions against homosexual practice? Well, here and there, there are some prohibitions. But remember, the Bible tells you that the pagans committed these acts, that the pagans were guilty of these acts, that they did these very things. Should it be any surprise to us? Should it be a surprise to us that the ancient world did not condemn these things widely when the Bible says this is what the people practice? Why the surprise? You know, when I was at NYU doing my doctoral work, right about that time, there was an Israeli scholar, Zev Meshel, who made a major discovery at a place called Kintelet Ajrud in northern, would have been northern Israel. And it was an inscription. So on, on the actual threshold of the door, the, the door post, there was actually an inscription when, when the Lord said, write these things on, on the doorpost, that it was literally done. And, and from what could be told, it was to Yahweh on, and his Asherah, to the God of Israel and his female consort, his female goddess. And people are like, oh, no, it can't, it can't be, could it be? No, it can't be, that's impossible. And I thought, well, why not? The Bible tells us the Israelites and the Judeans were guilty of all kinds of idolatry. That's why God destroyed the northern tribes. That's why God destroyed the temple. That's why God sent us into exile. We were guilty of all kinds of idolatry, especially in the north. So why should it surprise us if pagans had pagan practices because of which they did not have laws against them? Israel was going against that culture. You know, someone pointed out that the Bible has always been countercultural. It's not just today. It's not just today when we go against the spirit of the world and the grain of the world and, and the mindset of the world. It's always been like this. What Paul was dealing with in Corinth and calling the Corinthians to holiness and calling them out of sexual immorality and promiscuity and things like that, what Paul was doing then is what Moses was doing centuries earlier. And, and, and what Jeremiah was doing and what King Josiah was doing and, and what other reformers and prophets and kings and leaders were doing. When Josiah purified the temple, there was homosexual prostitution taking place there. There was all types of idolatry taking place there. There were women weaving to Asherah there. Look, Jeremiah is taken captive by the, the, the people of Judah and taken down to Egypt And when he rebukes them because they're worshiping false gods there in Egypt, and he rebukes them. I mean, look, the temple's destroyed. You're in in exile because of your sin. They say, no, no. Here's what happened. It's when we stopped, when we stopped worshiping these other gods. That's, That's when things went bad for us. 
that it's when we just turn to worship Yahweh alone and neglected these other gods, that's when they got mad at us and that's when they brought judgment on us. Yeah, absolutely crazy, absolutely insane. So why should it surprise us that the pagan world was pagan? Why should it surprise us that idol worshipers worshiped idols? Why should it surprise us that people with different standards of sexual morality committed different sexual acts and didn't have laws against some of them? So with all respect to Professor E or Dr. Edon Dershowitz's scholarship, what he's written here is a complete and total fabrication based on zero substantial evidence. It's, it's as if I concocted something totally out of my own imagination and said, well, hey, this is, this is what I think it said, so therefore this is what it says. All right. We'll be right back. Everybody on Facebook, I'm going to talk to you face-to-face in a moment. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome back, friends, to the Line of Fire, 866-34-TRUTH. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm trying to get some folks to do a little lip reading there, but that didn't didn't work. All right, 866-348-7884. If you have a Bible-related question for me, give me a call. As we do on Fridays, and we're never able to get to all the calls on Fridays, when we do You've Got Questions, We've Got Answers. If you have a Bible or theology-related question, go ahead and post it now. I just Or, or call me with it. Uh, here's a question posted by Adam. What answer would you give to a Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox person as to why you are not a member of their respective church? I would tell them that I base my faith on Scripture first and foremost. And when Scripture contradicts a later tradition, I have to reject that later tradition. When the tradition contradicts what's written, I have to reject that tradition. That's why I'm not a traditional Jew, because I differ with the traditions of rabbinic Judaism. And I find those traditions sometimes contracts, uh, uh, contradict Scripture directly and I find that those traditions ultimately pull me away from the truth of Jesus, the Messiah. So there may be some beautiful traditions in the Eastern Orthodox Church and some beautiful traditions in the Roman Catholic Church. And there may be some beautiful interpretations, scriptural interpretations and theological insights. However, however, when I see those traditions claiming divine authority, when I see those traditions used to back a system that I differ with, when I see those traditions claiming to have a, a, a status similar to Scripture, then I reject it. So in short, I, I am not Roman Catholic, I'm not Eastern Orthodox, because I see variations to the faith of Scripture in those denominations and, or those branches of the, of the church, I should say, and when I have a conflict between Scripture and tradition, I go with Scripture. So very simple in that respect. All right, let's just look at some uh, question of the Trinity versus oneness. So <clears throat> oneness Pentecostals rightly put a strong emphasis on the fact that God is one and one alone. 
That's positive, that's true, that's good, that's right, that there's one God and one God alone. But oneness doctrine fails to deal with aspects of God's nature that clearly indicate that he is triune, that he is complex in his unity. You know, a verse like John, the 17th chapter, is verse 5, where Jesus is speaking to his Father and speaks of the glory that they enjoyed before the foundation of the world. That flatly speaks of, of Father and Son. That plainly speaks of two and not one. When Jesus is getting baptized and the Spirit comes down upon him in the form of a dove and the Father speaks, this is my Son whom I love, you can't just say that those are different aspects of God or different modes of God. It simply doesn't work. The Father sending the Son, the Son returning to the Father and sending the Spirit, it's, it's not like a guy comes home from work and takes his uniform off. So at, at work, he was a, a, a working for the post office. Now he comes home and he's playing with his kids. Now he's the daddy. Now he hugs his wife. Now he's the husband. No, no, you're, you're talking about the, the husband sending the father who's going to get the postman. You're, you're talking about three and yet one. So the scriptures are clear. There's one God and one God only. And yet the scriptures are also clear. The Father, Son, and Spirit are all God and all distinct. Uh, let's see. Okay. Uh, Dina, I watched Dr. White and he said that you and he are going to do a debate with two homosexuals. Uh, it's not going to be Matthew Vines, correct? Uh, yes, that's correct. I still don't have confirmation. This is supposed to happen in September in Florida, sponsored by a theological seminary there. Uh, one man was very happy to debate us, said he believes the authority of Scripture, but has changed his views on this, and he was getting a colleague, but it still hasn't been absolutely confirmed. But it would be September 7th or 8th in Florida if it does happen. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Carl, I've heard a popular speaker describe Adam as both male and female before Eve was taken from What are your views on that? Yeah, there certainly he contained within him all of humanity. God made Adam in Genesis 1, so Adam slash mankind. God made Adam male and female, right? Male and female, he created them, and yet it's just Adam. And then God takes out of Adam, out of him, his side or his rib, and makes the woman. So there were components of male and female within him. But the idea that he was both male and female is a misnomer. Or some of the ancient rabbinic questions, you know, what was he both simultaneously? You know, so, so back to back, here's a man this way and a woman this way. Uh, no, there's certainly no evidence of that. He was a normal functioning male who had within him the seeds of a female as well that are then separated and made into female. Uh, let's see here. Uh, okay, I've got so how do I get the questions that I'm missing here? Okay. That I'm going to have to figure out. Um, <laughs> okay, so somebody's got to tell me on my live stream that I normally don't get to look at, how do I see the questions that have been posted that are older questions? 866-34-TRUTH is, I'm right, just trying to slide, get a little more centered here. Um, 866-348-7884, the number to call. Uh, let me let me say a few things to you about Bible questions and Bible controversies. Uh, number one, there are many, many questions that we do have. 
And as, as someone that does scholarly biblical work, I'm aware of many of the questions and textual issues and, and, and what is, uh, what is the, the exact reading here. But overall, nothing that affects our faith is challenged. In other words, the things that God requires of us, how we are to live, that's laid out plainly. There, there are no textual questions where if the text said this versus this, it would change everything. That's one thing. Here's another thing. When it comes to what we believe about God, all the fundamentals are clearly laid out. There is no ambiguity there. So the places where we have questions, you know, for example, as, as I worked hard on my Job commentary and translating the book of Job, those, those kinds of things, uh, there, there are ambiguities in various texts, there are ambiguities in various verses, but nothing that affects the overall message and the overall flow of the book. And then some of the challenge of it is also some of the mystery of the book that you have to dig and search. And in all this, we come to God with dependence. We come to God saying, help me, give me insight, open my eyes, give me understanding. Uh, let me grab another Facebook question, then I'm going to go to the phones. Let's see. Terrence, do you agree with the parallels that the sages made concerning the one who was pierced in Zechariah 12? He's referred to as the son of Joseph. Obviously, there is some, some bit of disagreement over this issue. Uh, but, okay, so <clears throat> Zechariah 12, in rabbinic literature, in the Talmudic tractate Sukkah, says the text they'll look to me whom they've pierced and they'll mourn over him that there are two different interpretations given in the Talmud to that and the Talmud often has dozens of interpretations of verses and laws and customs and things like that so one is that people are weeping at the end of the age they're, they're weeping when they stand before God and they see the evil inclination Judaism says there's a good inclination and an evil inclination that every human being struggles with this there's part of you that's pulling on you to do good and part of you pulling on you to do evil that, that it's the evil inclination that it's being spoken of that was slain at the end of the age and people will weep over this in saying this was it was so small and yet it kept me bound and I sinned so much that how can that be? The other view is that it's speaking of the death of Messiah, son of Joseph, and that at the end of the age, there will be two messianic figures, Messiah, son of Joseph, according to rabbinic tradition, who will fight the wars of the Lord successfully and then finally die in the last great war, in which case he will be raised from the dead by Messiah, son of David, who will finish the work and establish God's kingdom purposes in, in the world and rebuild the temple and regather the exiles and establish peace on the earth and bring all the Jewish people into obedience to the, the written Torah and to rabbinic tradition. That's according to traditional Judaism. There is one medieval scholar, Moshe Alshech, who actually interprets the death of Messiah, son of Joseph there as bringing atonement to Israel. To my knowledge, he's the only one that interprets it in an atoning way. So I would say it's, it's obviously wrong to look at a separate messianic figure, but it's a step in the right direction to see the prophecy as unfolding in messianic times. It's a step in the right direction to see Israel's pain and mourning over the death of this messianic figure. And with this one uh, medieval uh, rabbi, a, a preacher and, and commenter on scripture, 
yes, it's even a step closer to recognize that the death of this messianic figure had atoning power. What you just need to do now is, is connect the, the dots and recognize it's not a separate messianic figure. It's the one and only messianic figure, Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah. 866-34-TRUTH. All right, tell you what, uh, Andrew, stay right there, and I'm going to get to your question as soon as we come back on the other side of the break. Hey, hey friends, one thing I'm always seeking to do is bring a wake-up call to the church and preach a wake-up call in my own life. And this week's special resource offer you can find on our website, askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org, is designed to do just that, to stir your heart. A, a book that I wrote called How Saved Are We? that will rock your world. Uh, I wrote it in 1990 as God was really challenging me, what does it really mean to follow Jesus? That and another resource package together for you. Check it out at AskDrBrown.org. Okay, we will be right back. More of your Bible questions on the other side of the break. Stay right there. Fire we want, for fire we It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome, friends, to The Line of Fire. Michael Brown, delighted to be watching. Hey, Wendell, my old buddy Wendell. Just seen you pop up here on Facebook. First met Wendell in 1987 as he was serving on a missions team in Italy, served there for many years. I don't normally see my, uh, my Facebook feed as I'm doing the show, but we're on the road, as you can see. Now, this is not some imaginary uh, backdrop, backdrop that we have here. This is my hotel in California. We've got a great audio and video set up here. So, great to be with you. I have opened the phones. Gary, my man Gary, nice to see you online. 866-348-7884. All the time, people email me, text me, Mike, have you seen this? Dr. Brown, have you seen this? What about this? And there's always something new. There's always something weird. There's always something strange. Someone deviating from Scripture. Someone claiming the Bible says something that no one's ever seen before. And on and on and on it goes. So this is always... And look, I studied with all liberal professors or Orthodox Jewish professors or secular professors. In other words, none of them believed what I believed. So this is all through college, all through my master's, all through my PhD. So I was constantly exposed to different views and of course in constant dialogue with people in different religions and then in, with cults and then with different parts of the body. So I'm quite aware of controversies. And you say, well, where does that leave you? After 46 years in the Lord, it leaves me absolutely confident in the authority of scripture absolutely confident that God's word has been reliably preserved, absolutely confident that we are on the side of truth and that this is truth we can live for and truth we can die for. So don't be moved. Don't be moved by the, oh, someone discovered it. Listen, listen. <clears throat> there has been no major archaeological study of any kind to undermine scripture. There have been many archaeological finds of great import to corroborate scripture, but nothing has been discovered that clearly disproves something in the Bible. And if we're going to be intellectually honest, we have to throw out scripture. No, nothing to this day. There are some things that raise questions, or how does this align with this or that? But friends, having been in this for 46 years, 
and having studied with top scholars and professors that differ with me, I want to reassure you that God's Word, the Bible, is absolutely trustworthy. In fact, before I go to the phones with your Bible-related questions today, because this foundation for everything. Tomorrow we're going to have a great uh, interview with some guests on immigration. We're talking about moral, cultural issues all the time, but everything comes back to Scripture, 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 Scripture. That's the foundation. That's the basis for everything we say, do, and believe. All right, but let me just say this. Video number three in our Consider This series is about to come out. Any day this week, we will have it out. Who separated the church from its Jewish roots? Oh, this is going to be an eye-opener. We have prepared video four, which asks, are modern translations of the Bible reliable? But we need funding to produce it, to do the high-level graphics, and to get it out. If you want to stand with us, if you want to help us in that project, this, is, this costs thousands of dollars to do properly. And we, we do it at a reduced budget compared to many. But if you want to help us get out video number four and to consider this series, go to our website, askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org, and click on Donate, and then just designate what you want to give for or make sure that you enclose a note to us concerning that. All right, let us, without further ado, go to the phones, 866-34-TRUTH. In fact, just go to askdrbrown.org forward slash consider this forward slash. AskDrBrown.org forward slash consider this forward slash. You can donate there and you can see our first two videos, which are up already. Video number three, uh, any day this week will be ready. And then video number four, ready as soon as you help us get it up and ready. All right, we go over to California. Andrew, hey, where in California are you? I'm in Stockton. Okay, great. What's your question, sir? Uh, a friend of mine is being told that the King James Version is only reliable English translation that all modern translations have been altered and changed away from scriptural truth. Yeah, oh, so, okay. It's unfortunate that anyone in the year 2018 is being told that. It's one thing if someone loves the King James and finds it beautiful. I, I read it cover to cover five times the first couple of years I was saved. I probably memorized 4,000 verses out of it. Uh, how, however, uh, that, that being said, uh, no, that is 100% false on every level. Uh, if you want some good books on that, uh, just check out, search for King James Version, and then D.A. Carson, so highly respected New Testament scholar Donald Carson, D.A. Carson, or my friend and colleague James White, Dr. James White, the King James Only Controversy. Search for either of their names, D.A. Carson, James White, put in King James, and you will get uh, detailed information rebutting this idea. Uh, a few things of interest. Uh, you can also check on our website, sdrbrown.org, in the digital library. Just search for King James Version uh, because we did some whole shows about it, talking about strengths and weaknesses. Number one, the King James translators were trying to do uh, to, to provide a translation that would use the best manuscripts available in the best English they could and to be contemporary. They had no dream or thought of this is the authoritative thing forever. In fact, when you read their preface, for the translator's preface, you'd get the idea that if they were alive today, they would be doing a brand new translation. 
And if they were alive 30 years ago, they'd be doing a brand new translation. If they were alive 100 years from now, we're all here, they'd be doing a brand new translation. That's first thing. Second thing, we have better manuscript evidence now. We have texts that are much, much older. So here and there where there's controversy about a verse or about you know which letter was the right letter here, that we have more manuscript evidence, especially for the Hebrew Bible, than we ever had. So God has providentially given us more that gets us closer than we've ever been to the original text. That, that's another thing. A, a third thing is that we understand that language is better. We have more and more documents from the ancient world that help us understand ancient Hebrew, that help us understand ancient Greek. And therefore, we, we have better understanding of the words. So first, the King James translators were eager to have a contemporary version, and they would be the first to do it today. That's one. Two, we have better manuscript evidence than we ever had. Three, we have better knowledge of the Hebrew and Greek than we ever had. So of course, by all means, we should utilize what we have and, and improve our translations of the Bible. There's a fourth thing, which is that the English language has changed dramatically. So in certain ways, the King James today would be misunderstood. I'll give you a classic example. 2 Timothy 2.15, study to shew thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, if I quoted it correctly from memory from the King James. So you see, ah, study to shew thyself approved. So that means I should be studying the Bible to show myself approved as a man of God, as a servant of the Lord. Of course we should be. Of course we should be. And it does say we should be rightly handling, not rightly dividing, but rightly handling the word of God. But, but that being said, the word study there is simply Old English, and it means do your best. Strive to do your best. Hence, 1 Thessalonians 4, which says study to be quiet. doesn't mean read books about how to be quiet, but strive to live a quiet and peaceful life. So you wouldn't know that the word study has changed. You'd think, oh, it just, it just means study. So again, we should study the word, but 2 Timothy 2.15, rightly translated, should say strive, do your best best. Anyway, that's just one example out of many, many, many. And the King James, for all of its beauty and majesty, does have translation errors. There are things that could be done differently and better. And many translations, even with a top committee and decades of work, that after decades of work, you notice here's an error here. Here's something that needs to be improved here. Here's something that, that could be better here. So it is 100% bogus, bogus that the King James only is the authorized English and therefore should be followed. Hey, thank you, sir, for the question. Now, one last thing, Andrew. Many times people who hold to this do not hold to it based on scholarship. They hold to it based on dogma, and it becomes a spiritual stronghold. So pray that the truth will penetrate. Again, if you prefer the King James to this day, God bless you, all right? And if you say, well, I believe the New Testament textual traditions that it follows are the best, well, then fine, then read the New King James or read the modern English version, which also follow those same textual traditions. Great, by all means, do that. But the idea that the King James is the authorized or the divinely given version or the most fanatical uh, adherents actually say this. They actually say that if you can show that the King James has an error from the Hebrew or the Greek, then the error is in the Hebrew and Greek text. That's how bizarre this gets. Hey, thank you, sir, for the question. 866-34-TRUTH. Let me get to some of the other questions here. Uh, 
so Luna, which translation is best today? There's no one translation. There is no one translation. Every translation has strengths and weaknesses. So the ESV uh, is, is kind of in between the NIV and the NASB. It, it seeks to be careful and literal uh, and yet to read well. There are places, though, that I, I think uh, it's a little stiff, could read a little better. The CSB uh, takes a new route at different places and, and often renders things a little differently than we're used to seeing. And I like that a lot. But then here and there, I think uh, it, it deviates a bit, doesn't need to. The NET is meticulous to, to really try to dig out the meaning of the Hebrew and Greek and, and has tens of thousands of explanatory notes for that. However, it doesn't really read that well. Uh, the NIV, the, the old NIV, the 84 NIV, I, I like the way that reads better than the newer one, but it definitely had errors, the older NIV, in some places where, to smooth out the English, it missed some of the original. Uh, the Tree of Life version is one that I participated in, and, and that I really like because it has Yeshua for Jesus and it has Miriam for Mary and where appropriate Torah for law. Uh, but if you're not interested in something that recovers some of that Jewish feel, and even some of the unique style of translation there, uh, then you'd want something different. Um, the, I mean, those are, those are some of the major. The ISV is really nice in many ways, also comes at things from some different angles and, and has something unique in the New Testament, which is if there is poetry, it tries to render it poetically like the, the, it's called the Carmen Christi, the, the Song of Christ of the Messiah in Philippians, the second chapter, or in 1 Timothy, the third chapter, Great is the Mystery of Godliness, that those seem to be early hymns or fragments of hymns or, or poetic sayings that they may have been put to music. So the translator, even though it's not going to get the Greek exact because you can't do it in poetic form, uh, renders it very interestingly. All right, friends, we'll be right back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. All right, let's, let's try to do this. I'm going to rapid fire answer some of your questions that have been posted on our live feed on Facebook, okay? So we're broadcasting from California, and we should be doing a live feed. I've been asked to speak on the theme of Saving a Sick America tonight at a major culture conference being held at Azusa Pacific University put together by Praise Chapel. And uh, yeah, we should be doing a live stream, so be looking for it tonight, oh, 10, 11 o'clock at night, Eastern Standard Time. Okay, let me look at some of the questions you posted here. And okay. Uh, Stephanie, why do people say God was drunk once? I have no clue. Never heard it. Complete nonsense. Why would anyone even say that? Can't even respond. Complete nonsense. Uh, let's see here. Uh, why does the Bible not translate believes into is believing in most translations? John 3, 16, 5, 24 are often interpreted as reaching salvation by reaching a point of belief, leading to belief in once saved, always saved. Yeah, so the Greek is ongoing, whoever believes. But it, it's, it's not necessarily arguing there in John three sixteen that 
that it, I don't think it's making a statement there about you have to persevere in your faith in order to be saved. Yes, a true believer will persevere in faith, and if someone does not persevere in faith, they're outside the kingdom. We, we agree on that. And, and I do understand how it could be taken as once saved, always saved, if you just believe one time, right? Uh, but in English, we wouldn't normally say whoever is believing or whoever continues to believe. It's basically saying you put your trust in him. The assumption is that you will put your trust in him and keep your trust in him. The wrong deduction is that you'll put your trust in him, and then once you've done that, you're free to live however you want. You're still in. So it's a great question because the Greek is ongoing uh, and, and therefore cannot be used to support a once saved, always saved viewpoint. All right, let's keep going here. Um, well, let's see. Okay. Uh, William, I had someone tell me all medications are connected to witchcraft based on the Greek word pharmakia, which is used in the New Testament to refer to witchcraft. Now, now listen, listen. Within the Bible, it, it talks about like the balm of Gilead in, in the end of the eighth chapter of Jeremiah. And, and, and we know that certain things were used medicinally. Oil and wine were used medicinally, poured into wounds and, and various things like that. Uh, so it is utter nonsense to say all medications are witchcraft. All l Listen, the fact that a particular word over a period of centuries in other languages and cultures switches to mean something else is utterly irrelevant. As I've often said, the English word nice goes back to a French word for idiot. What does it prove? Nothing. That a word switches in over culture, it can, it can mean anything over a period of time. So complete and utter nonsense. Where, where do people get this from? <clears throat> All right. Uh, let's see here. Yeah, Ozzy, wake up church by going on a missions trip to a poor third world country. Yeah, absolutely. That's going to be life-changing. Having been overseas more than 160 times and many to go to India every year for 25 straight years. Absolutely so. Um my thoughts on Jonathan Walton's rapture list in reference to his view that the majority of the book of Revelation was already fulfilled in the history of Israel, not prophecy of what is yet to come. I, I find a lot of Jonathan's teaching on these subjects really problematic. I find his preterism really problematic. I find his mocking rejection of Israel problematic. Um, oh, a few years back, I invited him to dialogue with me on the radio to, to have a debate on it, and he declined uh, either. So I, I, I do not hold to a pre-trib rapture. As you know, Professor Craig Keener and I have a book coming out in March called Not Afraid of the Antichrist. Why we don't believe in a pre-trib rapture, you can pre-order on Amazon now. And when it's ready to come out, you get the lowest available price, but it's, it's already listed. You can read the blurb about it on Amazon, Not Afraid of the Antichrist, Keener and Brown. Uh, but the, the arguments for preterism and the arguments of, of things already being fulfilled in history uh, that especially when you have new heavens and new earth and various things like that, and that's some of the some uh, extreme preterists hold that we're already in the new heavens and the new earth. It's just some stuff that I find not just wrong but actually dangerous. Um, uh, let's see. Carolyn, is there a purpose behind playing the commercials, especially so loud? We don't control that feed. The same feed that you're getting from the studio, allowing you to hear me, is is the feed that that keeps coming. All right. And and sometimes if we switch it, so we can't control the volume either. It just it is what it is. But 
during the commercials, you can always turn it down on your computer or in your cell phone. Yeah, you're, you're allowed to do that. I'm, I'm just messing with you. But you can go ahead and do that. Um, can I briefly discuss a group trip to Israel coming up? Yes, yes, there's still, still room. Not a lot of room, but still room. February 1st through 10th. Getting your deposit now. Absolutely do it. Uh, so we go to all of the standard key sites you know, from Masada and Dead Sea in the south to key parts in Galilee in the north and, and then all of the key parts of Jerusalem. Every day you're like, oh, you're stunned, you're overwhelmed. And then I'm there at key places to do teaching during the day. You know, Elijah calling down fire from heaven, Mount Carmel, do a teaching there or, or baptisms in the River Jordan, which people really are moved by. I'll be there for those. And then Scott Volkert, our tour guide, there all through every day. And then at night... So we're calling it Holy Fire in the Holy Land. We'll be doing special meetings. I'll be doing teachings. We'll be doing Q&A. We'll have special worship times, preaching. So there'll be meetings at night. You'll, you'll get to do radio with me, uh, those that want to come along and do radio with me. So we'll do something special in the day, the amazing, life-changing tour. That alone, is if that was it and I wasn't even there, it's absolutely worth it to go. But then I'll be there for key teaching. And then every night we'll have the opportunity to do something uh, together. Uh, let's see here. Just scrolling down for some more questions. Hey, Shalom from Faith Church in Hungary. Please give Pastor Shandor my warmest regards and greetings and tell him it would be great to see him again in the church one of these days. Philip, I count you along with Derek Prince and N.T. Wright to be my mentors in Christ and my go-to sources for interpretation of Scripture. Hey, Philip, it's, it's an honor to be included with those two men what I'd note, though, is when it comes to Israel and views about Israel today or God's promises for Israel, stay with Dr. Prince and me, all right? We respectfully would differ with N.T. Wright and all of his brilliance when it comes to Israel. Uh, okay, let's see here. Keep going down for some more questions. Yeah, the NASB, as far as a modern translation, is excellent in, in many, many ways, but I find it a little stiff. In other words, by so trying to convey, say, Greek phraseology and tenses and things like that, it doesn't read that well. And the same for the Hebrew, there, that you want to be as literal as you can, but, but the Hebrew has power and majesty to it that, that often doesn't come across in the NASB. Uh, if you heard the interview I did last week with Donya Greenberg about the TLV, her goal, which is quite an ambitious goal, but her goal for it was that it would be as, as reverent as the King James as readable as the NIV, and as accurate as the NASB. That's what we, we sought as, as translators. Uh, <clears throat> let's see here. Yeah, Brian, if the King James was good enough for Paul, good enough for us. Yep, yep. Um, why did, was the NIV considered heretical? Some call it the nearly inspired version. Well, that came from, some from the King James only camp, and any deviation for the King James that became popular, they got very upset with. That's one thing. Uh, another, another thing is that, for example, let, let's say you have a verse that will talk about the blood of Jesus or the blood of the Son, and, and then another place you don't have it. And people say, oh, the NIV, they took the blood away. No, the better explanation is that in some places, in some places, it was added in, in a phrase. The translators or, or scribes, excuse me, copying manuscripts, are more likely to add in than take away. So sometimes you may have had it added because the phrase was a familiar phrase and you added something in. 
Uh, there is the rendering of verse having to do with homosexuality in 1 Corinthians 6 that some felt softened the meaning and, and therefore was heretical. Again, that's, that's more of a translation issue, though I, I don't think the NIV translate. I'm sure they, they didn't do the best job in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, the original one, the older NIV, they could have done better on that. In fact, let's just see the, the current NIV translation. So the current NIV for 1 Corinthians 6, 9 has changed things and improved on it so that what it says is, as I just look for it here, uh, neither the sexual, the moral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men. Uh, same thing, I believe, as the uh, ESV has men who practice homosexuality. Uh, the NASB, the effeminate, nor homosexuals, more homosexuals, but effeminate could be potentially misunderstood, as in the King James. Uh, the CSB, anyone practicing homosexuality, that does convey things more accurately. All right, let's see if I can grab a few more of your questions here. Um, yeah, Carl, so the Passion Version, that's not a translation, okay? That's not a translation. That's a paraphrase. Don't use it as your primary Bible, just like you shouldn't use the Message as your primary Bible or the Living Bible as your primary Bible. Those are paraphrases. And there, there are places where Brian Simmons, Dr. Simmons, has done a beautiful job of really grabbing uh, literally the passion of the text and conveying the beauty and the power of it. And that's, that's wonderful. That's excellent. But other times it, you're getting his view of things put in, you know, especially like Song of Solomon or something like that. So use it in a secondary way. After reading the Bible, then go to that to see, okay, how is he understanding this? How is he putting it the same way as you would with the message? Right, friends, we've got a really important interview tomorrow on immigration with John Zmirak and Al Parada. You don't want to miss it. It's going to be one of the more lively interviews we've ever done. And folks, be watching for our live stream on Facebook from tonight's meeting in California.